What a joyous time to lift our voices in song. An exciting opportunity to sing those lovely praises to the God of heaven, to appreciate the magnitude and abundance of the blessings He has showered upon each of us. It certainly would be perhaps entirely right for me to take a note of personal privilege and express appreciation to the Pippin Church for all that you have shown and done to my family and me for the time of the passing of my grandmother, a very sweet, devoted Christian lady, if I may borrow a bit of prejudice and bias, no doubt. But she strove to lead her children in the way of godliness. She strove to lead her grandchildren that way. The family is certainly at ease in regard to her passing, but we do express appreciation to you for the plant, for the prayers, for the visits that you made to the funeral home, everything that assisted us so much over the last few days. She was laid to rest yesterday there at John L. Clark Cemetery beside the high school in Jackson County next to Grandpa who passed away some 24 years ago, and so now they've made their way on into eternity. As we come this morning to our lesson, we again will make use of a continuing series of lessons with the following title. We looked last Lord's Day morning at the Bible and Marriage Part 1, and today we'll take a moment to reflect on some additional lessons from the Word of God on the Bible and marriage. To do that, perhaps a word of reminder may set our course in order. In fact, last Lord's Day morning, we at least used the first part of that lesson to highlight the difficulty and the problem that marriage is currently facing. There are so many forces that seem to be arrayed against it. The forces of those who, quite frankly, have an ungodly approach to the matters of the family, they don't lift the matter of marriage to the echelon and to the degree that God has. And so in many cases, they speak rather reproachfully of it. They refuse to enter into it. They teach against it in, in fact, many direct ways. In answer to that, we noticed seven points last Lord's Day morning. We first saw that it was a divine arrangement. And furthermore, as you can see on that slide, not only divine, but in addition, it was an honorable one at that. With regard to the honor, we specifically saw the permanence established in the arrangement for one woman for one man. With that, we came to appreciate that there was also the fact it involved three. Not just two, but by the arrangement of heaven it involved three, with the third being God. And finally, based on Genesis 2 verse 24, there was to be a leaving as well as a cleaving. And with that, that in fact was the matters that we discussed on that occasion. Today, let's continue that series by looking at some additional things to be found in the Word of God as it touches the subject of marriage. As we move in that direction, I simply will number these continuing from last time. And so we come to number eight. We looked at the first seven last Lord's Day. That was those that we just mentioned. And now for number eight, appreciation. I think we may well begin by making some of these comments. Marriage is a very unique arrangement. Although there are many relationships that members of the human family sustain, there's the relationship of student to teacher. There's the relationship of pupil in other ways to those who are instructors. There's the arrangement of, let's say, children to parents. There's the arrangement that may go on in any number of other ways, but the point that might be noted, marriage occupies an exceedingly special one in terms of a husband and wife and their relationship to each other. 
There are certain blessings and privileges which are vouchsafed to them, which are not given in any other arrangement on earth. In fact, I would ask you to notice the appreciation that even the Son of God Himself gave to the establishment of marriage. In the second chapter of the Gospel according to John, this was early now in the Lord's ministry, but on that occasion there was a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee and Jesus was present giving the complete affirmation of Himself and heaven itself that that which was occurring was in fact a right thing. Marriage is a beautiful thing, and the preciousness to be seen in it is to be highlighted in the appreciation Jesus in fact exemplified by being present. Not only He, but His mother was there, as well as in fact other members of the family. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse number 5, we see on that occasion a very telling question was asked. Have we not power to lead about a wife, a sister, as the brothers of the Lord and as of Cephas himself? There the interesting question was asked. Do we not have right to marry, to in fact have a sister who is a believer? Thus we see here the apostles, many of them were married. The brothers, the physical brothers of Jesus, many of them were married. Thus, we can readily see that this appreciation accords to the nature of an establishment that heaven has given its approval to. Marriage, again, is not merely something that some scholars in the Middle Ages came up with. It's not something the ancient Greeks figured out. It's not something the ancient Romans, in fact, devised. This is God's stamp of approval on the means whereby Mankind could find the sense of the greatest companionship and the happiness that God would wish him to know. But I would submit that not only should appreciation reach that stage, that is an appreciation for the arrangement of marriage itself. The husband should appreciate his wife. The wife should appreciate her husband. There should be a sense of strong appreciation one for the other. And there are some verses that lead us directly in that direction. In fact, in Proverbs 18 verse 22, dipping back into the words of the wise man Solomon, he had this to say, and there he said, speaking again of what the husband and the wife may feel for each other, this was especially written from the purview of, of the husband or from the man. On that occasion, he very quickly noted, Whosoever findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Now let's reflect upon that for just a moment. That man who finds the wife as described in the Word of God, and who enters into that arrangement, being able to again call her his wife, Solomon said he has found a good thing. That is written in a very special way, isn't it? Not just toward the appreciation of marriage in general, but for his wife. He has a degree of appreciation for who she is, what she stands for, the agreement she has made to be his devoted and faithful wife. You'll notice in the next chapter in Proverbs 19 verse 14, we also notice again a statement about the honor that accords an appreciation to the degree of marriage as to how each should look upon each other. That wife, again, being of the Lord and from the Lord. As you look upon some of the ways that those are written, it does take us back to the way in which marriage was first formed. 
when God looked at the man and said that it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make and help me for him, a helper suitable for him, one who can match or complement him in the best of ways, one who can in fact share with him in ways unlike any other arrangement, one that can afford to and offer to him the highest degree of contentment and satisfaction that that kind of arrangement will offer. Perhaps we each are well aware that when James Watkins was here a couple of years ago during our gospel meeting, and he preached one of those lessons relative to the subject of the home and marriage, it was perhaps along this line he made that comment that he knew exactly where paradise was, on earth at least. And he even gave the address for it. And of course, we each recognized what he meant when he gave that address. It was his home address there in uh, near just outside Lewisburg, Tennessee. You see, he and his wife, Foy, her name, James, in fact, described that as a foretaste of heaven, paradise on earth, as he appreciated her, she appreciated him, and they too had forged decades of marriage one with the other. That was his description of paradise on earth. As you give thought to this appreciation and how the Word of God has highlighted it, it does lead us to give some thought to what comes next. As they each consider the characteristics one of the other, as they come to understand that they enter into this marriage with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different histories, if you please, they nonetheless come to it with an understanding that they should be able to forge, based on love and based on the teaching of the Word, a solid rock foundation on which to build in appreciation for each other and in growing love as well. Love is our ninth element in this listing. As we give thought to the initial statement, though, of marriage, of course, love ought to be high on the list. I chose to insert it at this point. As you give thought to love, marriage partners, of course, should have that degree of love as they enter into that marriage. Marriage isn't to be just based on infatuation. He's handsome and she's pretty. It should go far deeper than that or else one likely is to find that when there's difficulties and problems, infatuation alone will not be a strong enough foundation to hurdle over them and overcome them and emerge victorious through them. But love is a different story. In fact, notice these commandments. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also Himself loved the church and gave Himself for it. Ephesians 5.25 A direct commandment to husbands, but lest we forget. Titus 2 verse 4 addresses women, addresses the wives. The women are to be taught to love their husbands as well. There is to be this issue of love existing between the husband and his wife. Perhaps it would be well to devote a bit more time to thinking about love as it follows from those verses. It is for that reason that I've defined each of them. It is interesting that the words that are employed in the sacred text take this form. Husbands, love your wives. That word love is the Greek word agapao. That's at least the verb form. Agape is how you and I often see it written or pronounced. That word means as follows. A love based on choice and evaluation. It is in fact a matter of will and decision. And remember, that's the same kind of love with which Christ loved the church. 
Well, you and I were sinners. Romans 5 eight. we were separate and apart from Him, and He loved us anyway. He loved us, gave Himself for us, shedding His blood, offering the sacrifice of Himself, and by that virtue He purchased the church, which is you and me. Acts 20.28 20, The Lord acted with complete, utter volition and choice with regard to His love for us. Husbands are to love their wives, again, with a decided sense of evaluation of who she is, the choices that one has made in the love of her and the marriage that has followed, and the character that flows out of it. That degree of choice and that degree of loving characteristic may lead us to notice that when wives are told to love their husbands, that word is the word phileo, which describes that affectionate and very tender kind of love she has for her husband. As you give thought to the, the aspect and reality of this love, it is sad, isn't it, that all too often our world seems to bypass this, and marriage, at least from the eyes of those that are outside, seems to be based on money, what each one financially can bring to the arrangement, what each one can in fact bring in terms of social circumstance, after all, in the ancient days of Europe, quite often marriages were contracted for that reason. A king would, in fact, set forth the marriage of his son to the daughter of another king, and so the family line of royalty could be continued. But nowhere in the Bible is marriage to be contracted on bases like that. Marriage should be formulated and based on that appreciative love one for the other and the understanding that perhaps these things follow. When that decision comes, that proposal is made, by that point it should be well said in mind, I want to spend the rest of my life with her, with him. If she accepts it, that should be the understanding. This is a permanent arrangement, one woman for one man for life. And I love him so much, and I love her so much, that I want to share my life with him or her. That's the way the description in terms of this love is set forth. The Lord didn't purchase one church for a while, then destroy it and start another one. The church has lived on now for 2,000 years, and it shall stand until the end of time, Daniel 2.44. With regard to those matters, love indeed how strong she is. One of the most telling verses in all of the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse number 6. Set thy seal upon my heart. Set thy seal upon mine arm, for love is stronger than death. Isn't that beautiful? Love is stronger than death. You see, we appreciate the power and mind and majesty that comes with the deep-seated love that so often you and I have been blessed to witness. And perhaps those that are our parents or our grandparents or neighbors or friends. But we need to make certain that our next generation appreciates that love unlike so often what the world teaches, mustn't be based on matters other than a deep-seated appreciation that expresses itself in that complete and realistic matter of love. As you can see also in Daniel and rather Deuteronomy 24:5, even in the Old Testament, that degree of love was manifested in a sense of togetherness. There is a desire to be with each other a desire to spend time with one another. Sometimes it's to be admitted that job situations may require one to drive on the road or travel elsewhere, 
But when the opportunity affords itself, there should be a great deal of delight and a great deal of loveliness in terms of being able to just be together. Whether it's in sharing of meals, being together to perhaps study or do other things, or just being together to take a lovely walk. It is a very special time when a husband and his wife can enjoy things like that. It forms a bond of togetherness that allows them to at least highlight and increase the sense of trustworthiness and reliability one on the other. It seems as if that was an interesting part of even Deuteronomy 24.5. When a couple first married in the Old Testament, for a period of one year, the husband was not to be charged with warlike duties. The reason given is so he can be at home to cheer his wife. Being apart, especially after being first married, can cause additional difficulties and problems. And so God made arrangement that for a period of a year, He is to remain at home so they can be together, so they can begin to build a sense of increased trust and reliability on each other. Today, that principle is still a very useful one to consider. And in each instance, even if it's not in the first year, enjoy times together. Find ways to, in fact, put into your schedule the special and specific means whereby you can enjoy, being, enjoy the time one with the other. Appreciation as well as love. Let's move on to yet a third one. The issue that's described under the heading of affection. We've already noted this matter about love, and of course that will manifest itself and exhibit itself in a number of ways. But I might ask that we notice some of the descriptive ways in which the Bible presents this idea. We each are well of the fact that on a number of occasions, the Bible makes reference to marriage under the heading of one flesh. It begins as early as the book of Genesis and goes on into the heart of the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. They shall be one flesh, Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. Later we find in Ephesians 5.31, and it was the Lord who twice made that statement in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 5. In each instance, the husband and the wife were merged, fashioned, joined, inserted, asserted as one flesh. With regard to that one flesh, might we at least ask some of the details and the specifics of wherein that may in fact be? Certainly, as you think about oneness, the matter of one flesh, it's fair to appreciate that has a number of levels in which it might be understood. Let's, in fact, try to give some thought to a number of them. First of all, that union that has manifested itself in marriage. From 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, you and I may note it as follows. I would invite you to read that verse with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. That statement coming again from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and I have in fact written it so that we would directly be able to read the words that the Holy Spirit penned. We notice the King James translation reads that, and there is something specifically to husbands as well as to wives that is stated. The husband... Whatever it means is to render unto her due benevolence. 
And by the same token, she is to render that into him. The clear question, of course, is what is due benevolence? As we often employ that word, we may in fact begin to question or at least wonder, what is the matter under description here? For that reason, I've used two other translations that may shed some light on those Greek words that, were, that are herein written. The American Standard reads that verse this way, "...let the husband render unto the wife her due, and likewise also the wife unto her husband." So this of which the Holy Spirit is writing is something she's due, and He should pay it to her, or offer it, or provide it to her. And by the same token, He is due this, and she should avail it to, provide it to Him. Maybe a third translation will be of assistance. This is the New King James translation. It reads, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. At this point, we do notice this usage of the word affection. And that partly prompted me to the title, or at least the heading of this section of the lesson. The other words that are herein rendered, as you look back to the Greek text, the word in Greek seems to relate very intimately and very closely to the way that all of these are rendered. And it does make reference to something that involves affection. As the husband renders it to her, as she reciprocates it to him, perhaps it's worthy to notice that this is something, the, again, that a couple should appreciate. Be it a tender kiss, be it the holding of hands, be it that tenderness with which they can enjoy being together. There is nothing inappropriate about the expression of that affection to the one you love in that way. Again, that's the way that God has arranged and ordained and orchestrated the issue of marriage, isn't it? The affection that one is to enjoy sharing with the other one. After all, when one married, that infatuation, that sense of at first how handsome he was and how pretty and lovely she is, is able to manifest it into the sense of the character of affection one is able to share with the other one. Now in frankness today we see a world in which this of course is couched in ways that are sinful. We see it on TV, people who are not married enjoying this. That's inappropriate and it's improper. We also in fact see those who will take it a step further which is what we're also going to at least briefly share next. For this one flesh that's highlighted so far and the affection that should be enjoyed amongst those two does lead us to see as well that that even emanates into the sexual intimacy that they, the husband and his lawfully wedded wife, are able to enjoy one with the other. In fact, the New Testament speaks of this in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter. It is because of that we're well aware that one flesh can also involve the character of the manifestation of that love even to that degree. And again, what a lovely blessing it is for them. Isn't it thus sad when again our world allows and at least even encourages that to be expressed, that sexual intimacy between people unmarried. They live together on occasions. Others enjoy one night stands. They're going to answer to the God of heaven for that. For that is not the way that God arranged it. Sexuality is a meaningfully deep and powerful expression of how one feels to the other. And outside the scriptural marriage of the New Testament, that is not to be. It is not to be 
appreciated. It is not to be enjoyed. It is not to be tampered with. It is not to be experimented with. That's why the only thing our children should be taught is abstinence. It is not something that our health classes should teach them to use things whereby they can enjoy it and experiment. That's sin. And they need to understand that. And they need to, in fact, be aware of what God teaches on that subject. It is for that reason that I come to that bottom statement on that slide. That sexual intimacy that a couple should enjoy one with the other is generically that blessing, again, from God. That is not to be something that, again, is removed or left outside unless they agree to such both. In fact, there are other passages that, in fact, tell us Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7 is the one to which I would direct your attention. It says, Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. It goes without saying that the sexual feelings inside the human frame can be strong. And they can, in fact, be very prompting. And here Paul says that you shouldn't withhold from your partner, your, your married partner, those things of this sexual character unless, again, it is by consent and only then for a season. Otherwise, Satan, due to that sense of desire, those sense of propensities in the flesh, you may begin to think on things and do things that are inappropriate, improper, and sinful. I might ask each of us to give thought again to the difficulties the world has seen. There have been religions who've taught the sinfulness of sexuality and have urged their members to never give in to those kind of feelings and we each are aware of what has come to pass. Men begin to do things with girls. Men begin to do things with boys. And on and on the list goes and we notice Satan can tempt them due to the incontinency, the burning desire that's in their flesh and they begin to act in sinful and ungodly ways. God had the best arrangement all along and it is that arrangement which we must respect and understand that is the blessing and part of it that goes with the scriptural marriage. Might I invite us to notice as we come near the close of that slide, we've looked at three elements so far today as we've looked at this character of affection, as we've seen this matter of love. And now with it, let's take it a step further and look at yet something else as well. Number 11 in our list. Having looked at numbers 8, 9, and 10, let's add to these matters the element of trust. In a marriage, we're well appreciative of the fact that there should be a rather strong degree of trust. I would ask you to notice 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 7. In the apostles' inspired listing and description of love, that is the love chapter of the New Testament, isn't it? We find in it that love believeth all things. At least a part of what's included in a statement like that is the characteristic of a degree of trust that exists between those two. As she trusts her husband, as he trusts his wife... They may each, in fact, leave the house in the morning, proceed to their respective places of employment or other duties of the day, but all the while there should be a deep-seated, contented, and satisfied element of trust that what he's doing today 
what is a proper thing for my husband to do? And she's doing today what would be the proper thing for my wife to be doing. That element of trust is highlighted in some of the statements that it would seem follows in these passages we're about to consider. That means love doesn't jump to unwarranted conclusions. It doesn't paint a picture of what's not true and what's not there. It operates on the premise of a statement of trust and belief. Now with that, I would ask you to notice that a marriage that doesn't have this degree of trust may be nothing more than a cohabitation. Well, they may live together, but if they don't trust each other, there's always going to be suspicion. There's always going to be skepticism. There's always going to be doubt. There will always, in fact, be an element of underlying misery because that's not the way marriage ought to be. There ought to be the characteristic of that trust. And it is that that leads me to say that love doesn't envy. That was a part of what, again, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love envieth not. In what way might that come to pass here? Well, that word envy in that Greek text means this, is not zealous in an evil way. When that husband and wife love each other, neither is zealous toward things that are evil. That would certainly include and incorporate distrust. For those reasons, it's certainly fair to say that very last statement. Both partners in marriage have every right, not only by the vows that they made, but also by the character of God's teaching to expect that the mate will behave in a godly and behave in an appropriate and proper fashion. Now that certainly means the husband shouldn't be flirting with other women. He should not be directing his attention in improper ways to other women. The wife, too, should not be flirting with men, directing her attention or the thoughts of her mind or exposing her body in ways that would, in fact, excite other men. That is improper. It is inappropriate and sinful for each one of them to act in that way. They are to be kept one for the other. That not only is what the Bible teaches, it's the vows they made. A part of those vows that always seems to appear to keep yourself unto her and to her alone. And she promises to do the same. And thus, in that sense of the promise and vow that they've made to keep themselves one to the other, being faithful until death. That leads us to notice that this unchaste behavior is in fact some of what Paul addressed in this very chapter. I would again ask you to notice the language of verse 5 that we just read that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. To begin, if your wife or husband will not provide that affection of sexuality, that he or she may begin to seek it elsewhere, be it in pornographic ways, be it in ways that in fact involve looking at things, perhaps certain TV channels, that is to be satisfied by the mate and by no one else. Our world, of course, is awash in pornography. Magazines, there are places you can go, you see them advertised that offer these so-called adult magazines. Such is a tragedy. It's a travesty to seek sexual excitement in those ways when it ought to be in the friendly, loving, and God-approved confines of a scriptural marriage. It is also to be noted that inappropriate behavior, again, works in each direction. The husband has the right to expect his wife to behave in a chaste fashion. 
she has the right to expect him to do the same. With regard to all of that, the statements of that trust that exists within a marriage, that does mean we must always, of course, be careful. There are people in our world who do not see things in God's way. They will purposely try to make advances to either the wife or the husband, as the case may be, having little regard to what God teaches and little regard to the marriage in which that person may be involved. Thus, we must ever behave ourselves properly and appropriately and make certain that any such advances are immediately removed and quashed and set aside as if they understand immediately this will not be. It is for all those reasons that we perhaps come to element 12. Item 12 in our also listing of marriage, the issue of patience. There also should exist an element, and a rather strong one at that, of the matter of patience in this marriage. It goes without saying that when two people first get married, there is a quick, steep learning curve. After all, they haven't lived together before, at least if they've done things by God's way, and yet there's immediately so much to learn. The individual habits and tendencies of each one, the characteristic of 24-hour-a-day living together and all that goes with it, all the issues of dealing with money together, all the issues of dealing with visiting each family together. That's a lot of things to take on at once. And so there's no doubt that there will be differences of a background or sometimes one may have a slightly different opinion about something. It will take patience. Work together. In many instances, it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. It's just that they look at the same thing slightly differently. And so there must come a point of looking at things in the sense of appreciation of one another. And that will require initial patience at the very least. As you give thought to this matter of patience, in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, love suffereth long. Love suffereth long. That means love is patient. When these two love each other, they will understand by the character of reason and the understanding of the arrangement in which they've now entered that there will be a time of growing together and patience will be the order of the day as they work with each other, love each other, live with each other, see the tendencies and individual habits and daily order of the other. It is an amazing thing to notice that even as newlyweds see this, it's also true that even those who've been married older never need to forget the need for patience. New situations always arise in life. Sicknesses will come. Times of promotion and rejoicing will come. To deal with all of them, patience is going to be a good thing. It'll help smooth over what difficulties arise. I would ask you to notice, if there isn't these things, frustration can grow. If one is not patient and immediately expects satisfaction or gratification, there can come this issue of frustration on the part of the other one that I can't talk to you anymore. I can't express myself. And as that frustration grows, it can lead to an increasing distancing of one from the other, and that isn't healthy, and it isn't good for the marriage. How vital patience is, and yet patience is described as a Christian attribute in two different places. 
in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, as well as in that famous passage of Ephesians 4, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing means to bear with each other. Now, inasmuch as that described Christianity as a whole, it certainly would be a part of one's marriage, to bear with each other. Men and women often look at things slightly differently. Many a book has been written about that. But we understand that as long as they dwell in patience, and that love and foundation of affection on which it's all based is properly oriented and written, then they shall be able to go past whatever those differences may be and forge a strong relationship in marriage one with the other. It is for all those reasons that some conclusion statements might be in order for our lesson this Sunday morning. We've highlighted some continuing descriptions about marriage. In addition to those seven we noted last Lord's Day, we've added five more today. We've made mention of the characteristic of appreciation. How that not only for the marriage, but yea, for individuals, each should appreciate the other one. Secondly, we noted the character of love, and thirdly, the affection that they, by God, are blessed to be able to share. Finally, we saw the last two, which was that trust that they can enjoy, understanding that this man is devoted to me and no one else, or this woman is devoted to me and no one else. And finally... We notice the interesting characteristic of patience. As we look forward to continuing this series next Lord's Day morning, God has more to say of things that can assist us in our marriages. For today, I would invite each of us to give thought, Are you a faithful Christian? That is by far the finest foundation on which to begin to discuss marriage. If you've never obeyed the gospel, Jesus, the Son of God, shed His blood for you. At Calvary so long ago, He paid one sacrifice for sins forever, Hebrews 10, verse 12. Today, if you haven't become a Christian, realize that this is what the Lord demands of you. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the majestic name of Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If we could be of help, to you today in fulfilling that and attending to that need, let today be the day. If you have become a Christian, a faithful child of God, but you have wandered away from the fold of devotion to Jesus, you've begun to be a servant to the, to the devil. We do know there's only two masters. Either you'll love the one, hate the other, hold to the one, despise the other, Matthew 6, 24. Which one are you holding to today? If you need to confess error in a public way, We'd be honored to pray on your behalf to the God of heaven. He's promised to forgive 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we could be of assistance to you this very day, would you not let us know if you would so that we could help you and do that while together we stand and while we sing.